Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Pastor James Biddle and Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. Remember, we are blessed to be a blessing. Thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet. <laughs> it is a light unto our path. We receive your word with joy tonight. We receive your word with gladness. And Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're growing us inside, that we're growing up to become followers of Jesus. And for that, we are so thankful for it. In the name of our Lord and Jesus, our best friend, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's jump in. Mark chapter 15. I'm going to cover 20 verses tonight. This is going to be record pace, but it won't feel rushed. It won't feel like it's a big passage because of the of kind of the nature of the passage. Now, let me just tell you that tonight's lesson is going to be a difficult one because of the passage we are in. It's it's going to be kind of an emotional roller coaster. We're going to jump in tonight to the very trial of Jesus. Jesus has been through the last supper. We've seen him in the garden. Peter has now denied him, and Jesus has been hurried and swept away into this a false trial, and so we're going to kind of pick in tonight and pick up, and we're going to peek into this trial that Jesus is in. You might want to write this down if you're taking notes. This is found in all four Gospels, and remember, the Gospel writers, they weren't on Twitter together seeing what each other were writing. They were in different places, different languages, different audiences. Many different years separate the writings, and so it's <coughs> it's amazing to see the, the commonality. It's amazing. It's a miracle to see the theme and the thread and the details. They didn't have each other's writings to compare. It's just amazing to see how the Holy Spirit was speaking to this one and speaking to this one. And when you put them all together, you get a beautiful picture of the New Testament, a beautiful picture of the life of Christ. And it's it's really special. So um, it's been a hard night for Jesus. He's prayed for Peter, yet Peter denied him. He has been betrayed by a close friend in Judas. All the disciples that he loved and invested in three, maybe four, some scholars say up to six years, safely three, potentially four, some say maybe up to six years that Jesus invested in these men, invested in his relationships. They all fled. The only one that remotely stayed within earshot was John. But he wasn't there, wasn't close. He was, he was kind of a, a, from a distance viewing it. Jesus, by this point, has been mocked. He's been beaten. He is very badly bruised. How many of you have ever had a car accident or some kind of accident where you had some bruising and, and some, you know, some, some wounds? Jesus has been beaten. He's been, he's been very badly bruised. He's been placed in a holding cell. All this happens in the middle of the night. Remember, we're in the, we're, we're in the Last Supper. Remember the Passover, the Last Supper? That night, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's betrayed by Judas, and that's when he's taken to the high priest, and he's beaten. Remember, they spit on him, and they beat on him, and they erupt in violence. This is that night. We have now ticked over, and we're getting into that next morning. We're getting into the day of Good Friday, where Jesus will be crucified, where the Lamb of God will be slain for you and I. And so that's where we are in this story. And so Jesus has been been uh, dragged to a holding cell, and now we pick up on this. And I can just imagine that the, the religious leaders rush in and they bind him up. Notice here, they bind up the man who never tried to escape. 
He could have called legions of angels down. We showed you that math a few sessions ago. How many thousands of angels that Jesus could have called. But yet they bind him up because they are that afraid of his power. They're that afraid of his authority. As I was studying this even today, I thought they bound up the one who wasn't trying to escape. But that just shows you where their mindset was. Their mentality. Have you ever been paranoid? Paranoia will drive you to places you don't want to go. I've been in situations before where people have acted out of character because of paranoia, because of suspicion. They've done things they wouldn't normally do. I just want to have you say this tonight because I just sense this, maybe maybe not for you, but maybe for those listening online. We never know who's going to drop by and hear the podcast. But just say this with me out loud. Say, everybody is not out to get me. Everybody is not my enemy. Matter of fact, very few people are out to get me. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just want to say that. We don't have to be suspicious of, of everyone and of everything. And we should, the Bible talks about believing the best. Love believes the best in people. Now, if you keep betraying me and keep, you know, disowning my trust and breaking my trust, eventually I'm not going to believe the best in you for a season, right? But we need to, we need to believe the best in people. So <clears throat> this is where we are. Now, let me, let me give you some things here to think about. Where, where we find ourselves. Jesus has really six, six, what you'd call six trials in this little span of time, or six kind of pinpoints where there's movement in this trial. It starts out with the religious leaders. Jesus hadn't committed any crimes against the Roman government. The way it's set up is they're in Jerusalem. It's at the Feast of the Passover, so the, the city is swelled to thousands, thousands upon thousands are now in the city of Jerusalem, pilgrims. You know, you read today about pilgrimages to the Holy Land. Well, that started, you know, centuries ago. And so all these people who lived in different areas once a year would take a vacation. They would all pilgrims to pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they would celebrate Passover there in Jerusalem. <coughs> and so Jerusalem is under the, the control of the Roman government. Even though it's a city... And it's a, it's a great place, and it's it's in Judea, the land of Judea. It's under the control of the Roman Empire. It's kind of like the state of Tennessee has our own set of rules and guidelines and senators and things like that. But yet we are under the umbrella of the federal government. We have a higher power than even just a governor. We have a higher set of laws. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing, a little bit different. But basically, there's a massive Roman military presence in the city of Jerusalem, especially this time of year because it's Passover, because the Jewish people were not happy with the Romans. They were being occupied against their will. Uh, they were being uh, overseen by the Roman government, and it wasn't something they volunteered for. So there were always riots. This is important for our context tonight. There were always revolutionists rising up. <coughs> How many of you seen in Nicaragua? <coughs> Excuse me. How many of you saw in Nicaragua? just this past month, where there were all kinds of riots in the streets because of something the government did. The people were rising up. This is what happened all the time in Jerusalem. There'd be a charismatic leader that would rise up and he would say, we're going to overthrow the Roman government. And of course, they never could because the Roman government was a massive military machine. And so, but but there was all these insurrectionists is what they would call them. They would rise up. It'd be like Jim saying, I'm going to lead a revolt against the city council of Knoxville, and he gathers some people, and they go out with sticks and stones, and they're going to revolt against the government. Well, it didn't, didn't work out too well. But Pilate, we're going to read in our story, Pilate, this is context, Pilate has had some run-ins with these Jewish 
um, revolutionist. We, we hear about Syria. We hear about the opposition, you know, in Syria to, to Assad. We hear about the opposition forces. So Pilate had had a run-in many times with the opposition forces, meaning these Jewish people would revolt against the government, and the Roman government would have to send in the military and squash it. That's why you would see thousands of Christians crucified in the streets under the emperors because they were trying to put fear in the people. That's why they did public crucifixions. Do you know why we're talking about Jesus dying on a cross? Because it's public capital punishment. This is a criminal. Look what we do to criminals. This is a revolutionist. Look what we do to revolutionists. This guy said he was a king. Look what we do to people that say they're a king. The whole thing of public crucifixions was to put fear in the hearts of the Jewish people so they would not rise up against the Roman government. Are you tracking with me? Because this is really important context for our story. <coughs> so Jesus has been taken by the religious leaders. They had no real governmental authority. They were all just abiding by their own religious laws. In fact, they didn't even have authority to put someone to death. The religious leaders of the day, now we see stonings, and well, how is this person stoned? And there's actually a time period where there's a vacuum of leadership in the area of Judea from the Roman government, and the religious leaders kind of took advantage of that vacuum. And that's when we see Stephen being stoned in the New Testament, so forth, so on. But they did not have the authority to crucify anyone. The Jewish religious leaders, the Sadducees, Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they didn't have the authority to execute folks. <clears throat> so they take Jesus to the father-in-law of the high priest. His name is Annas, and he was kind of the founding father of the day. He didn't have any real authority. He was just the father-in-law of the current high priest. And they take Jesus to Annas, and they say, what should we do with him? And they say, take him to Caiaphas. Remember last time, BJ talked about Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the current high priest. He's the ultimate leader. It'd be like the pope, someone taking someone to the ultimate highest religious leader in the land. So they take Jesus to Caiaphas. And they try to establish charges against Jesus, but everybody gets their story mixed up. And so they convene again in the middle of the night. Now this is important because Jewish law says you can't have a trial in the middle of the night. Jewish law says you can only try a man under the observation of daylight. So the very fact that they had this trial of Jesus in the middle of the night was totally wrong. It was totally unfair. It was totally conjured up. And so what they did carry is they brought all the leaders. Here's the religious leaders. Here's the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. Here's the, the high priest and all that go. And they say, we need to take Jesus to Pilate, but we need charges that are going to stick. If they took Jesus to Pilate and said, Jesus is committing blasphemy. He says he's God. Pilate would say, that's your problem. Deal with it. That's a religious problem. Pilate does not deal with religious problems. Be like me calling Governor Haslam saying, Joyce and my church is acting up. She's just not behaving. She's not falling. Listen, Mr. Biddle, that's your problem. Don't bring that problem to the governor. That's your church's problem. Get your deacons, get your board, get the bouncer carry, whatever you got to do. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, governor doesn't care if Joyce isn't behaving, right, in church, right? Well, she just, she brings a tambourine and she plays every Sunday and it's just distracting. Governor Haslam's not going to care that Joyce is playing a tambourine. Thank God Joyce doesn't play a tambourine on Sundays. <laughs> Not against Joyce, but I'm just not a huge tambourine fan. So Pilate does not deal with religious problems. So they had this third mock trial in the middle of the night, and they came together and they say, We will say that Jesus 
has said he will be king. Now see, that is a problem that will get the attention of Pilate. Because Pilate has already been in trouble from the Roman emperor, and history tells us that it was the last strike for Pilate. Pilate had had several revolutionary men and groups rise up and cause problems to the Roman government. And the Roman emperor said, Pilate, if it happens again, if you have one more mishap, it's your life. So you see the perfect storm brewing here now in context for this trial? Pilate had nothing to do with the church. So they could not bring Jesus to Pilate based on a religious problem. Blasphemy. He says he's God. Pilate doesn't care. But he says he's a king. Only Caesar is king. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Pilate understands, is this a revolutionary man? That's what Pilate's trying to get at. Is this a guy that's going to lead a revolt against Rome? Is this a guy that's going to lead a, a, a group and, and, and take over our kingdom? So that's where we find ourselves here in the context of the religious trial. So they take Jesus to Pilate early in the morning. We're going to read the scriptures in a minute. Just giving you some context. The reason it's early in the morning is because the Roman government would only do trials up until about noon. After noon, they were done. They didn't do any more official business because of the heat and whatever else. <coughs> Most commentators say just because of the heat. They wouldn't do any trials or anything like that after about noon. So these religious leaders made sure they were the very first people at the courthouse that morning because they had a case to try. Passover is coming. All this has to be done before Passover. That's why the hurriedness. That's why the rushing. And so early in the morning, before the break of dawn, they are at Pilate's doorstep waiting with this man who is, is threatening to be king over the Jews, king over Israel. And so Pilate deals with him and, and realizes that he's a Galilean. And he says, well, I can't help you. you got to take him to Herod. Herod is the one who is the governor over the Galilean area. Now, why is Herod important? Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnate. Remember the one who had John the Baptist beheaded? It was Herod. Because John the Baptist would walk by and go, you're an adulteress. Remember Herod was in an adulterous affair. Uh, with his, with, uh, he was living in sin. He was an adulterous affair. And John the Baptist was calling him out on it. And so remember, uh, Herod said, what can I do for you? And, and they brought the head of John the Baptist on the platter. So Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life to haunt him and to torment him. And so Herod says, actually, he's a Nazarene. I can't do anything with him. And he sends him back to Pilate. So you see Jesus being ping-ponged around. They take him to Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to deal with it, so he sends him to Herod. Herod says, he's really not in my jurisdiction. I, I've already killed John the Baptist. I don't want to do this again. I'm sending him back to you. So now we wind back up in our story with Jesus back in the hands of Pilate. And that's where we're going to pick up today. Mark 15, let's look at verse 1. <coughs> Early in the morning. Because, again, the Roman court was only held till noon, so they had to be the first ones there. Or they might not get in. They might not get it done. The chief priest with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation, and they bound Jesus, and they led him away to deliver him to Pilate. Now, the high priest, uh, uh, the religious leaders came together, and they were trying to assess a crime onto Jesus. They're trying to pin him with something that will stick because you only get one shot before Pilate. They have to convince Pilate that he's a criminal. They have to convince Pilate that he's a threat. 
And so here, um, Pilate, I noticed, I put this here, that Pilate was not normally in this area. The reason Pilate was in Jerusalem was because it's the Feast of Passover. Pilate is there with his Roman military presence so he can keep down any riots, keep down any revolutions from arising. That's why Pilate is in the city. So look at verse 2. So Pilate, Jesus is standing before Pilate, <coughs> and Pilate questions him, Are you the king of the Jews? They've brought you to me. And they say, you are a king. Now, I want to show you something here. Are you, it says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, we read that as a question like he was asking Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? But it's really like this. In the Greek language, you is actually at the beginning of the sentence. And it reads like this. You? You are the king of the Jews? Like, you, you're beaten and you're bruised and you're bloody. You've got dried blood on your face. You've got blood, dried spit in your beard. You is this the best the Jews can do? You really, you it's a, it's a mockery. You you are really the king of the Jews. And look what Jesus said. Jesus said, "It is as you say. It is as you say. What you've said is true. Yes, I'm the king of the Jews, but I'm not a king in a sense where I want to revolt against you and take over Rome. And 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 I'm not that kind of king. But yes, I am a king. <laughs> you see, when when Pilate began to ask these questions. He's hoping that Jesus would either incriminate himself, make this thing real easy, or that Jesus would defend himself. Every, every, other, every other criminal, when they were brought before Pilate, would have this massive defense. They would say, I didn't do this, I'm defending myself, because Pilate drives the train that stops at death. You better speak up. You are the king of the Jews. You better defend yourself. You better, t you better plead a case here because I'm driving the train and the end of the train is death. And Jesus said, it is as you have said. You have said truthful. Um, we see the same thing in Luke 22. They say, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, yes, I am the son of God. So Pilate is saying, is this a threat to me? Is this a threat to the government? And at this point, the religious leaders, they rush in Pilate's questioning Jesus, and at this point, the religious leaders rush in and begin to mount and hurl insults at Jesus. They begin to just mount this case against the Lord. Look at verse 3. So the religious leaders rush in, and they begin to pile on all these accusations. The chief priest, the Bible says, began to accuse him harshly. So they wouldn't even give Jesus a chance. Look at verse 4. So Pilate questioned Jesus again. Do you not answer See how many charges are brought against you. I am the one that controls your life. You should speak up. Why are you not answering me? But look at verse 5. Jesus made no further answer, and Pilate was amazed. Why was Pilate amazed? Because there's a criminal here in Jesus who's not defending himself. Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, it is as you have said. What you've spoken is true. And Jesus didn't say another word. So we see a miraculous thing here. What were they accusing of Jesus? What were the accusations brought against him? Look at Luke 23. <coughs> Luke 23 tells us this in verse 1. It says, the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. Look at verse 2. And they began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation 
and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Isn't that a lie? Didn't Jesus get a coin out of the fish's mouth? And, didn't, and, and they said, Master, should we pay taxes? And he reached down and got a coin and said, Whose picture is on this coin? They said, Caesar. What did Jesus say? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. But look at this lie. Jesus was crucified on a lie. Look at this. They said, he's misleading our nation. He's forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. And he's saying he himself is Christ, a king. So verse 3. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, it is as you say. Verse 4. So Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. All he has ever done is used words. He's never led a riot, never led a revolution. All he says is that he's the king of the Jews. This is your problem. He says, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate is trying to get out of having to deal with this. But they keep on and they keep on and they keep on. Look at verse 5. They kept on insisting. They wouldn't let it go. Pilate's ready to move on. He says, this man's not guilty. This man hasn't done anything. He's not defending himself. He's not... This man, something was different about Jesus, and Pilate knew it. And look, it says in verse 5, in Luke 23, they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Look at verse 6. This is what they were accusing Jesus of. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. In verse 7, when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at the time. And so there's the second trial. Then Herod sends him back to Pilate. Mark actually skips this interaction with Herod. That's why I wanted to bring it out, because the other Gospels bring out the trial with Herod, and it is skipped here in our reading. So look at uh, verse 8, Tara, Luke 23, verse 8. Let's look at this exchange between Herod, because Mark doesn't give us the details. Luke 23 and verse 8. I'll read it. Luke 23, 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time. Herod was an evil man, a sick man. He'd heard about all the... Jesus had a reputation. So Herod had heard about this, and he wanted to meet Jesus. But instead of calling the church office and scheduling an appointment, he didn't do that. He just waited. So it says he wanted him. Now listen, he was hoping to see him perform some kind of sign and some kind of miracle. So here's Jesus bound. And he's bloody, he's bruised, he's been beaten in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been beaten by the high priest. Uh, Pilate's boys have roughed him up. Jesus is in rough shape. Most of the physical abuse that Jesus endured happened before the cross. We look at the cross and we think crucifixion is a, is a gruesome thing. And it is being nailed to the cross and so forth. But the, the majority of the physical beating that Jesus endured happened before the cross. That's why he could not even carry the cross beam up the hill. That's why they had to find another man to carry the cross. Because Jesus had been beaten and lost so much blood. So look, Jesus, you're the king of the Jews. Do a miracle. My arm is hurting. Can you heal my arm? And Jesus doesn't say a word. He's bound. He's bleeding. He's bruised. Now look with me at the next verse, verse 9. So Herod questioned him at some length. Could you imagine Jesus in his state being bound? He's bloody and bruised and having to go through an interrogation session? It says they questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. 
Can you imagine Herod walking around asking this question? Jesus just stands there asking another. It, it, it says at length. There, we're drawn to the fact that this was a long interrogation. And the Bible says Jesus answered him nothing. Look at verse 10. So the chief priests and scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. Jesus wasn't saying anything, but they kept hurling insults. Look at verse 11. This is where our emotions begin to get pulled into this story. <coughs> so Herod with the soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, they held him in contempt of court because he wouldn't answer. So they dressed Jesus in a gorgeous robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. Now let me tell you something here. I don't mean this crass, but there's something we need to know. Jesus, this entire time, was completely naked. They had stripped every bit of clothing off Jesus. For a Greek, it wasn't anything to be naked. They all were naked all the time. But for a Jew, for a rabbi, it was the most shameful thing. Could you imagine being paraded through the streets completely naked? How embarrassing. You can't even cover yourself because you're bound, totally exposed. And so they said, well, this is a king. We can't let a king walk around naked. And they put a gorgeous robe on Jesus as a mockery. So look at verse 12. Now, when Herod, now, now at that point, Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. Before that, they'd been enemies. So they became friends over mocking and celebrating and putting to death Jesus. That, brought, that was their common ground that brought these two governors together. So now, Tara, go back to Mark 15. Go back up, verse 6. Let's pick back up in Mark's story. Yeah, there we go, going down to verse 6. Now the feast, now at the feast, he, Pilate, we're back in Pilate's court now, used to release for them a prisoner whom they would request. So see, they were trying to appease the Jews. The Roman government wanted peace among the Jews, so they made them a treaty. They said, if you all are peaceful and you're behaving yourself, we will release one prisoner for you every year. At the Passover feast, whoever you request, we will release that one prisoner. So let's go on down now to verse 7. So there's a man named Barabbas, and he had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist. He was a real riotist. He was a real revolutionary leader. And he had committed murder in the insurrection, meaning Barabbas was revolting against the Roman government and had actually committed murder. This man had done everything they're accusing Jesus of. Everything they're saying about Jesus was actually seen in Barabbas. Barabbas was guilty. Jesus was not. So notice verse 8. The crowd went up and began asking Pilate, to do as he had done for them in the past, which was their custom. Verse 9, Pilate answered, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Do you want me to release Jesus? Or look in verse 10. <coughs> it says, For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. So why did the chief priest hand over Jesus? Because of envy. Strife and jealousy and envy caused them to hand over Jesus. Pilate says, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Look at verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd. Get this image. There's a crowd there that has been falsely gathered. It's not a real trial. It's a crowd gathered by the high priest 
to help them in their influence, to help on their side. And they begin to shout, release to us Barabbas. We don't want the king of the Jews. We want Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Give us the murderer. <coughs> they begin to meddle in this trial. Now what was this crowd? Many think the crowd was Barabbas' own friends and family who were there hoping to get him out. Others think the crowd was not made up of the pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem, but false witnesses that had been involved in that night's trial. This was the crowd that would... Because, you know, we, we, we say when they brought Jesus into the city, you know, they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the next few weeks, you know, a week later, they're crying, crucify him. It's a different crowd. It's a false crowd. You ever been to a church meeting and, and somebody stirs up something and brings a bunch of people on their side? You know what I'm talking about? To get, you know, they got an agenda or a PTA meeting or a school meeting or something and, and somebody's got an agenda and they bring people that support their agenda. That's what happened. The crowd was not those who Jesus had healed. The crowd was not those who Jesus had touched. The crowd was those that was controlled by the high priest and their, their evil influence. And this was in the middle of the night. Now we're back in the morning. So look at verse 12. Now, now we begin to really see into this. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? Pilate didn't believe this man to be an insurrectionist. Pilate didn't believe this man Jesus to be a revolutionary man. Barabbas was. He was convicted. He murdered someone. So they said, Give us Barabbas! And, and Pilate says, well, then what do I do with Jesus? Look at verse 13. Now we see the, the heat being turned up. And they shouted, crucify him. Crucify him! Crucify him! He must die! Look at Pilate's response in verse 14. But what has he done? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. The high priests are running back and forth, stirring up the crowd, crucify him. And there's this, this it's like a pot that's about to bubble over. And Pilate begins to get very nervous. Because if Pilate has one more mark against him on his behavior chart, he will be put to death. And it's getting out of hand. This crowd is growing. It's growing in intensity. It's growing in volume. They're yelling now at the top of their lungs. Hundreds of people crucify him. This could spread to the governor that there was unrest and there's supposed to be peace. And so Pilate begins to get nervous. He begins to sense his pot's about to bubble over. Have you ever cooked potatoes, boiled potatoes? And you come and you see that layer of foam coming to the top and you run over it just a moment and you take it off the heat at just the right time and you keep that pot of potatoes from boiling over. Jim's like, what's a potato? What is this? No. <laughs> Do you know how many you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever seen a potato? You should try to cook one sometime. You know what I'm talking about? Or macaroni or pasta or something. It's about to boil over, Carrie, and you see it and you run over and at just the right time you take it off the heat and that foam layer goes back down. That's what's happening here. Pilate senses this uprising, senses this stirring. He must do something about it. Pilate said, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Look at verse 15. Wishing to satisfy and appease the crowd, 
Pilate released Barabbas for them and had Jesus scourged. I want to show you something you've probably never seen before. Jesus was scourged and whipped at the whipping purse before he was ever condemned. No sentence has been passed on Jesus. And I, I thought, why? I, Angie, why? Why would Pilate have him scourged and flogged before even passing sentence? And I read something very interesting. Several commentators that I studied thought Pilate was trying to manipulate the crowd. And if, they, if he could have Jesus scourged and flogged, they might have compassion on Jesus and it might appease them and Pilate would not have to crucify him. Because Pilate, I don't have time to get into it, but his own wife had, had, a, had a dream and said, there's something different about it. I believe it was either Pilate or Herod's wife. I can't remember, but I, I believe it was Pilate's wife. said, I've had a dream about this man all night. I can't stop thinking about him. So many said, and I thought, you know what, that makes sense. Because he hadn't even been condemned. If I can scourge him and beat him almost to death, maybe the crowd will have compassion and sympathy and I'll be done. This will be, remember Pilate washes his hands later on of Jesus. He says, I wash my hands of you. I wash, you do what you will. I wash my hands of him. So he had him scourged and then he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate was not after justice. He was just looking out for himself. He didn't want a religious revolt. Look at John 19, 15. This gives us a little bit more insight. John 19, 15. So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And listen what the Jewish religious leaders said. This was blasphemy. They said, We have no king but Caesar. They had stumped so low. Everything they held dear, all their religious piety and traditions, they threw it out the door. They sacrificed and compromised to get what they wanted, and they wanted Jesus to die. Now, I won't go into details on the scourging because you've seen it, but they would take wooden handles. And the best image I've ever seen of this is in the movie Risen. How many of you have seen the movie Risen? It appears to be the most historically accurate they would tie a man's hands down on the ground, bent over on his knees like this, and tie him to a stake. And there were two Roman guards, one on each side, and they would basically just take turns. One would swing. As soon as he would get it back, the other would bring it in. And it wasn't a whip like a belt. It was a, what they called the cat of nine tails, and it was a wooden handle with a leather strap that had nine tentacles coming out from it. And within those tentacles were bones and metal, and it would literally rip the flesh Many men died from scourging. Many men died from the scourging. <laughs> In fact, Josephus, church historian, tells us that you could see men's intestines and their backbone after they were beat. It would literally rip skin and flesh and knock out teeth and, and eyes. And I know that's graphic, but this is what Jesus endured before the cross. That's why I said that most of the physical abuse Jesus endured happened before the cross, which is why he couldn't carry the cross. So now I want to pick back up in verse 16. The soldiers took Jesus away. Um, Mark 15, 16. The soldiers took Jesus away into the palace. So he's been scourged now. And Pilate gives him one more chance. 
the Jews, it was against their religion to go into the palace. So they're not in there. They're outside. Pilate brings in Jesus, bloody, beaten, scourged. One more time, soldiers took him away to the palace, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. Pilate's given him one more chance. Now look at verse 17. They have a discussion there. We can read that Luke and John. Look at verse 17. Look what they did to Jesus. Now it's turned into a game. Now it's turned into mockery. They dressed him in a purple robe, and they twisted a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. Go to verse 18. And they begin to acclaim, Hail, the king of the Jews. Look at your king. He's all bloody. He's got a robe. Imagine, have you ever had a shirt or a, a pants or something on a wound, how, how that itches and irritates and hurts? That robe must have been very uncomfortable on the wounds that Jesus had. They begin to claim, Hail, the king of the Jews. Look at verse 19. And they kept beating his head with a reed. So it's not enough that he's been beaten and bruised and bloody already. It's not enough he's been scourged almost to death. But it said, notice the tense here. They kept beating his head with a reed. Jesus suffered massive brain damage and concussion damage during this process. Massive. Wasn't it? They were enjoying this. They were, they were it was sport. And they kept spitting on him and kneeling down and bowing down before him. Look at verse 20. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off and put on his own garments. And they led him out to crucify him. <clears throat> so what did this look like? God gave the prophet Isaiah a glimpse into this. Look at Isaiah 52, and we're getting ready to close this up today. I know this is heavy, but the good news is Jesus is alive. The good news is He endured this so Angie doesn't have to. You see, Jesus went through hell so Joyce doesn't have to. Jesus endured all the pain and suffering so Jim doesn't have to. Isn't that awesome? That's the story of the gospel. Notice this here. Isaiah prophesied, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up. Greatly exalted. That's the Jesus we know now. That's the Jesus we worship now. Look at the next verse in verse 14. Many were astonished at you, Jesus. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. His appearance was so marred more than any other man. Another translation says he wasn't even recognizable. Jesus was honestly beat to the point where you couldn't even tell he was a man. How do I know? Because his own disciples in the garden tomb at the garden tomb and on the road to Emmaus his own followers did not recognize him Mary who was so close to him thought he was the gardener why because he was so beat he was marred more than any other man and his form was marred more than any of the sons of men so I want to close today by reading the entire prophecy from Isaiah 53 this is so powerful this is going to just light your fire for a love for the Lord all over again because of the price He paid for us. Doesn't the Bible say we love Him because He first loved us? He endured this trial for us. So let me just read to you as, as we settle our hearts tonight. I want to read to you the whole chapter of Isaiah. It's just 12 verses. But Tara, I'm going to read it here and I want you to track with me, okay? Who has believed our message 
To whom has the Lord revealed His powerful arm? My servant, that's Jesus, grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There is nothing beautiful or majestic about His appearance, nothing to attract us to Him. Meaning Jesus wasn't winning beauty pageants. Jesus was a normal little gruffy boy. Jesus was a little boy just like my little boy. He's handsome and I think he's cute, but he's not like the most, you know, handsome little boy. Wasn't a little halo, wasn't glowing. There was nothing special about Jesus growing up. He just looked like everybody else. Matter of fact, he was probably a little more ugly than most guys, if we're going to be honest about it. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> he was despised and rejected for Terah. He was despised and, and despised and rejected for Scarlet. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We just read about that in the trial. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. That's the disciples when they all ran. This was prophesied hundreds of years before Christ. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our rebellion. Jesus was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole and healed. With his stripes we are healed. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. Did we not just read that he remained silent? Four or five hundred years before Christ, it was prophesied that he would stand before rulers treated harshly and not say a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep is silent before the shears. He did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. Jesus was maybe 33 to 35 years old. No one cared that his life was cut short. He was struck down for the rebellion of my people. Verse 9, he had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone. He was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. The prophet Isaiah saw this hundreds of years before it actually happened. This is amazing to me. But verse 10, it was the Lord's good plan to crush him, cause him grief. And yet his life is made an offering for sin. And he will have many descendants. Jesus died a man with no physical children, but now he has millions and millions of spiritual descendants and offspring. Notice this here. He will enjoy a long life in the Lord's good plan. He will prosper in his hands. Look at verse 11. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. God, when he saw all that was accomplished in the death of burial and resurrection, he was satisfied. Meaning God is no longer angry at Carrie because his anger has been satisfied. God is no longer angry at Angie because he was satisfied. His wrath was poured out on Jesus so he doesn't have to pour his wrath out on us. 
And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous because Jesus went through what he went through. He made it possible for many to be counted righteous for he will bear all their sins. That's me, ladies and gentlemen. That's me on that screen. 2,000 years later, look at verse 12. God says, I will give him the honor of a victorious soldier. So you see Jesus, the suffering servant. Now he really is the king. We see him with dried blood and spit in his beard and mocked and naked and, and beat. But now he is the victorious king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. Remember Barabbas? He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and even interceded for the rebels. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Jesus. I just gave you the gospel. That's what it's all about. He took our place. Hopefully after tonight you will view the trials of Jesus in a new way. Isn't it amazing when you just dive in and just look at these passages? So I know I kept you a little bit longer, but hopefully it was worth it. Sure worth it to me. Sure worth it to me.